Well, good morning. Good to see you all out there. Great to worship the Lord together with you. Thanks for leading us in worship through song. And Sam, thanks for leading us in a call to worship at the beginning. You know, we were at a wedding uh, recently, um, the wedding of Matt and Molly, Howard now, and love for when they return back from their honeymoon to welcome them as a new family. At that wedding, there was a number of speeches. They're here today. I see them waving out the door. Well, we welcome you. Uh, as a new family, um, at that wedding, there was a number of speeches, and I saw Sam Robinson's mother walking down to make one, and I know Sam's dear mother, Anne, very well, and I said, well, here comes a message about Jesus. And uh, Sam, you are just like your mother in many ways, and you lead us and led us so well uh, to consider our Lord and the glories of our Lord. And this morning we pick up the second chapter of this little Old Testament book that we're in called Haggai. If you're visiting with us, we love that you're here. We'd love for you to join us as we open the Word of God and exposit the truths from it each Lord's Day. And we're in this second chapter today. What I want us to do is do a very brief recap of what chapter 1 showed us. We saw from the context that Haggai came with a word from God to those two leaders of Jerusalem at the time. Zerubbabel, the prince or governor, and Joshua, the high priest. And this word from God through Haggai to the people was to consider their ways, you recall. And think about which kingdom they were prioritizing. The physical kingdom or the spiritual kingdom? This call by Haggai came 16 years after Israel had returned to the land after the Babylonian exile. And they got back because God stirred, you recall, the heart of King Cyrus, a Persian king, who sent a decree out that Israel can return to the land and that gold and silver must be given to them as they do, wherever they may be found. And so they return, but they do not do what God says and prioritize God's interests. Even after 16 years of being back in their land, they still don't do that. They're happy with saying, not yet. Not yet, the time has not yet come, all while the time had come for them to dwell in paneled houses. They had misplaced spiritual priorities. We saw that God, through Haggai, came in chapter 1, at the very beginning of chapter 1, with an accusation of exactly that. And then in light of those misplaced spiritual priorities, Haggai then goes on to show the results of prioritizing God's, uh, our, our interests, how interests over God's interests, and they were severe. You remember they planted a ton of seed, but they only harvested a very little amount of food. The lack of food meant that there was a lack of satisfying hunger. And when there's no food, people get hangry. Drink was in such limited supply that people were not also able to quench their thirst. 
clothing was lacking any real quality at all to keep people warm. And as we made mention of last Lord's Day, wages did not match inflation and so things are hard. But we also saw that upon the people comprehending that the fatherly discipline that was upon them and the hearing of the word of God preached through Haggai, we saw that the people responded. They responded in realizing that they had been happy to say not yet to the building of the Lord's house, which was the place of worship. They were happy to say no to that, but they were happy to have built their own houses. And so heeding the message brought by the messenger, they get going. And as they get going in rebuilding the temple, God gives them, we looked at those last week, those powerful words of assurance that we did belabor somewhat because they needed to be stressed. Those words from God, I am with you. Part of God with them and with us meant and means that it is God who stirs spirits into longing and desiring and delighting to obey him. And that's what happened at the end of chapter 1 and verse 14, where God stirs the spirit, it says there, of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people, and they began to rebuild the temple. So chapter 1 really highlighted an accusation which led to an appropriation which brought about assurance. And if you missed, missed that message from last week, I want to encourage you to pick that up online. And this morning, though, we will consider the second message that God gives to the people through this prophet preacher Haggai. You'll recall, after all, that there are four sermons that Haggai gives, four words of the Lord that Haggai gives to these people. Our passage this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, is the second of those four. And in our passage this morning, we'll see three seasons that marked the people to whom Haggai was declaring the word of God to. Three times, three epochs, if you will, three marks. And we will note how encouraging the message from Haggai to the people is. And we'll draw some direct implications for us today because we need encouragement. Sometimes I talk to some of you and you've been away from church for a while and you see you after the service and you'll say, man, I needed that. Or even after a week where you're facing just a piling on of trial after trial and you come and sing the first song and you say, man, I needed that. What is the that that we needed? It's encouragement. To sing of a holy God as the opening song did a work in my heart. I trust in yours as well. Because life is no picnic. Life is no picnic. We are both our own worst enemies. I think you'll agree with me in that. And we live among a fallen world. And so by our own doing and the doing of others, all undergirded by God at work in the life of his people, 
for his own glory and our good, we often face pressing and challenging times. And what may be challenging to someone else may not be quite the challenge to another. And what might be pressing to another might be pale in significance to the pressing matters that another is facing. But the reality is, is that we all face pressing times. We need encouragement. That's what I love about the Lord's Day. The means of grace in the Lord's Day. These three seasons that we'll look up in our passage or moments in time we'll see are, if you're taking notes, I want to give those to you up front as I often do. Number one, troubled times in verses one through three. We'll see second, encouraging times in verses four and five. And then finally, third, we'll see future times in verses six through nine. Just a simple outline there for you. And so let's jump right in and begin. And may God bless the preaching of his word. And aid us by His Spirit to appropriate and apply in the midst of pressing difficult times what we hear from God this morning. And so let's begin number one, troubled times. We see those in verses one through three. Look at verse one first. It says, on the 21st of the seventh month, the word of Yahweh came by Haggai the prophet. We can learn From here, a little bit about what was going on. Why the need for this second word from Haggai? First, we see that this second message from God to the people through Haggai, the prophet preacher, the matter of fact preacher we saw last week, was two months after the first message. And I want you to know that troubled and discouraging times had occurred. Yes, they had heeded the first message. They began to build, evidencing, realigned spiritual priorities, which is good. And yet there's some factors here that we'll see that have brought about some post-obedient blues, if you will. What the time and date stamp in verse 1 tells us is that this occurred on the final day of what is called the Feast of Tabernacles. You recall from chapter 1 that God sent Haggai on that new moon Sabbath festival, extraordinary Sabbath, unlike the weekly Sabbath, meaning that everyone was in town for this one, all the people and all the leaders. God sent Haggai then, 16 years of not yet, For God's house, but fine for my own house. And God sent Haggai when everyone was in town. Well, for this second message, God sends Haggai during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles ran for a week. From the 15th through to the 21st of the 7th month. Haggai says this was on the 21st of the 7th month. Meaning it was on the final day. That's when God waited to bring a man with a message, because God always brings a man with a message. The Feast of Tabernacles celebrates and commemorates the covenant faithfulness of God in protecting and providing for his people as they traveled throughout the wilderness wanderings in the Exodus. There were 
three or so major festivals that all of Israel was to ascend up to Jerusalem for. And this was one of them, Passover, obviously the other. And so again, just like the first message in chapter one, when that God sends Haggai to preach, when all the people were there. And what's the significance of all the people being there? It means that the entire nation was there to hear. And so Haggai does it again here in this. God does it through Haggai again in this second message. A key part of the Feast of Tabernacles was food. I mean, what would a wedding be without food? What would a birthday be without food? What would a celebratory time be without food? And for the people right now here in Haggai's time was food in abundance no you remember the results of those misplaced spiritual priorities that fell upon them because of their not yet look at verse 6 of chapter 1 again by way of reminder you have sown much but harvest little you eat so there is a little bit to eat you eat but there is not enough to be satisfied. And so there was not enough food to live off fully, let alone celebrate with. And so this is troubling times. Another thing contributing to this is found in verses 2 and 3. Look there. This is the word now from Haggai. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and... To the remnant of the people saying, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? The older people would have laid eyes on the prior temple, Solomon's one. And then laid their eyes upon the measly beginnings of this rebuild and became discouraged. So no food, no stellar temple rebuild, as money was not in abundance as it was in days gone by. The economy was really bad because of spiritual misplaced priorities. So from an earthly perspective, these were troubled Times, But there is a third contributing factor to all of this was the hostility they were on the receiving end as they commenced building. Zechariah spoke to this exact thing when he said in Zechariah chapter 8 verse 10, For him who went out or came in, there was no peace because of his enemies. If you read chapters 4 and 5 and 6 of Ezra, you'll see that exact thing fleshed out some more. People did not like the Jews. And a Persian governor did not either. The rebuilding of the one true place of worship of the one true God incensed them, you see in chapters 4 through 6 of Ezra. And in response... The people, including this Persian king at the time, they intimidated the people. And so set the scene in your mind. You had no food for a week-long festival. 
all of those with the gift of organizing functions, call it hospitality, but it would have been a stressful time. No food for a festival. Lack of money meant the temple rebuild was not as splendorous, and so the people began to be discouraged, and the nations despised and intimidated you often. And so, please note that this second word from God through Haggai to the people came about because there was, after a two-month burst of joyful obedience in light of that first word from Haggai to consider their ways, a slump back to stalling to do what God calls them to do and to prioritize God above all things. And I think you and I can relate to that, can't we? Post-obedient blues. Maybe even this week. Chapter 1 of Haggai gave you much to think about. And we made moves in our heart and mind, and we began to act, and then we stalled. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. We battle daily, moment by moment in those days. And when, when that happens, and when there is... Not an echoing in our hearts and minds after hearing a word like chapter 1 in Haggai, consider your ways. Then one of two things I believe has happened. We either heard the call and in our heart of hearts we still said, not yet. Not yet. Just like the people did. In chapter 1. Or, we responded to the message from God through Haggai in chapter 1. And then we were overwhelmed come Monday or some day during the week by the demands of things. And by the demands of earthly pursuits. And we kind of forgot to apply to our mind and our affections and our will and our actions what God said through Haggai. I want to tell you. That if you heard and still said in your soul and in your mind and heart and in your actions, not yet. Then you need a greater understanding of God's word to us through Haggai from chapter 1. But if you did consider your ways. And if you did seek to apply the truths of chapter 1 to your life and you commence the work as it were, and yet stumbled in trying and faltered in continuing or even midweek forgot altogether, to some degree that is okay. That is okay. Because when we truly hear the message and you know you heard it because you seek to apply it, That is, the message to no longer look for satisfaction in that which never truly satisfies. Like paneled houses or earthly comforts. You see, 
our minds inform our affections. And our affections will eventually drive our will. When we truly grasp that satisfaction never comes from paneled houses or earthly comforts and safety. Or a good reputation. But God's glory. A glory made manifest by His people here on earth, the church, assembled in worship in the doing of God's will. Here on earth, as we behold Jesus Christ and serve Him as King above all kings and rulers as an act of worshipful gratitude to God, being from where we find true and lasting satisfaction. Because never forget, for those in Haggai's day, this was about the temple. This was about the worship of God, elevating the worthiness of God in our life. As the people of God. And for us. We no longer go to a temple. Jesus said that when he came something greater than the temple has come. And so what it means to realign our spiritual priorities. Is to have them fixated upon giving Jesus Christ. The worthiness and the worship due his name. No matter the predicament. No matter if there is no food for the feast, no matter if things have changed and there is no longer those good old days, and no matter the intimidation that comes from the world. And so if we stumble and trip in our pursuit, it's okay. It's okay. And it's okay because now in this second message of Haggai, God goes on now to give us more means for living without misplaced priorities. But properly placed ones. In fact, the rest of this passage is devoted to people like you and me who truly desire to heed the message, to appropriate the message, which means to make it ours and take it on in the heart. To have our spiritual priorities aligned with what God wants them to be. Namely, that He and His work and His worthiness of our worship and service. And He is our treasure and source of satisfaction. Expressly revealed in the Son, the Lord Jesus, as we serve Him and behold Him and adore Him and prioritize Him. And you know what? That takes courage. That takes courage. Courage. You say, what? Yes, it does. And I want you to see that because in this next part of this second message from Haggai now that we're in this morning, first there were the troubled times in verses 1 through 3. Next, I want you to see the encouraging times in verses 4 and 5. We hear a message as the people of God. We respond to that message as the people of God. And then we falter and we stumble and trip. And God in his kindness then comes along with another word. Such is his love. By encouraging times, I'm not meaning the absence of trouble. 
These people would still be in pressing times. We still will face and are facing pressing times. Jesus said to us in John chapter 16, verse 13, in this world you will have tribulation. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Be persecuted. And so when we see our misplaced spiritual priorities, and when we long to realign them so as to live them out to the glory of God and His good pleasure, and we make moves towards that, which are moves that are wrought by God in our spirit and in our heart, and then we are faced with troubled times, post those movements from stemming from the longing of our heart as we realign our spiritual priorities, acknowledging that we have not in our life prioritized the spiritual kingdom, but we've become so horizontal. When we begin to make movements, we need courage. For when we prioritize the spiritual kingdom, we face opposition from Satan's kingdom. Three words for you. The word encourage, the word courage, and the word discourage. I was thinking about that this week. Looking at those words and thinking all those words contain the word courage. Well, a little bit of research, the prefix N on encourage means to put courage into a person. The prefix dis means to remove courage from a person. And so Christian encouragement. And the encouragement that God gives to his people through messages like the prophet preacher Haggai it is more than nice feelings and feeling good. It is with the express purpose of giving us courage to keep going. To realign, to reestablish, and to press on. Interestingly enough, the word courage comes from the French word courage and the Latin word core, meaning heart. And so, at the core of courage and what it means to be encouraged are matters of the heart. And so, in more ways than one, what we are drawing satisfaction from, meaning what has our affections, our heart, is of most importance. Because if we are treasuring our possessions, our paneled houses, our material wealth, our reputation, our comfort, our ease, and they are from where we are drawing satisfaction from, then we are faulty and we have failed from the start because from them we can draw no courage. What courage are you going to draw from material wealth? A house. I've been in the ocean with waves so big they'll crush any of our houses. They're nothing. We can't draw any courage from these things. And you know what? 
God in his wisdom knows that. And he knows our frame. And out of the storehouse of his riches and love, he gives to his people in times of discouragement and trouble, words like verses 4 and 5. Look there. But now, take courage, Zerubbabel, declares Yahweh. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares Yahweh, and work. For I am with you. There's a shift in the tenor now. God's covenantal love for his children is on display here now. As he brings words of encouragement inside troubled and discouraging times. Like a loving father. Yahweh gives several words of comforting command to his children at this juncture. He gives three in fact. Number one, take courage, beginning of verse 4. Number two, work, end of verse 4. And then three, do not fear, end of verse 5, if you look there. Each of these commands are a call to receive the grace of God. So as to renew their resolve and to have courage for the trials ahead. But what is it that undergirds these exhortations? What are the reasons for them? Look again at verse 4. It's that little yet powerful phrase yet again, for I am with you. That's what undergirds. That's the reasons behind those commands. The reason we can take courage. The reason we can keep going and not quit. The reason we can press on unafraid is because of the presence of God in our lives. Our adoption as children ushers us into union and communion with the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent God who revealed himself to us in the Son, the Lord Jesus, whom we are united to by faith. And he would not be the good shepherd if he did not carefully walk with each of his sheep. Side by side in their presence. He would not be the good shepherd if he was not with us through the valleys of lows and the mountains of highs. And he would not be the good shepherd if he lost any of his sheep. But praise be to God the Father. This is exactly who we have. Our Lord Jesus a Savior, as our God and King, the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent Son, Jesus Christ, who promises to never leave us and never forsake us. We are ever in His presence, ever in His hand, ever in His care, ever in His love, and ever in His grip. The presence of God in the life of the child of God, the believer, is an immense encouragement. In the purest sense of the word. That is, 
It puts courage into us. In the darkest of valleys, the deepest of waters, and the downcast of times. Psalm 42 verse 5, very special, says this. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. And so this word here by Haggai brings consolation. And the way God accomplishes this for them is bringing to mind the events of the exodus of Egypt. Look at verse 5. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. God made a covenant with the people as they came out of Egypt. Exodus 24 speaks of that covenant. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. Exodus 24 speaks of it being ratified. And so here in verse 5 of Haggai, God is wanting them to look again at the way in which God Himself made Himself present among them in the cutting of that covenant with them and to find that presence in His Word. Because where do they go back to when they, when they hear those words? They go back to the Mosaic Law. They go back to the Torah. They go back to the Word and they find God's presence in His Word. Remarkable stuff. God says His Spirit dwells in their midst. And as they came out of Egypt in the Exodus, Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 20 says, You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. God's presence with us means we need not be afraid. And because of all of this, we can keep going and not quit. Each of us has a ministry because we all minister. That's what we do. We weren't made for luxurious times. We were made for strenuous ministry times. Yes, we find rest physically and we find our rest ultimately in Jesus Christ. But each and every believer is to spend themselves for the glory of God because they were made for the glory of God. And the glory of God is made manifest when the people of God expend themselves and expel themselves for the glory of God. Not in our own strength. In that ministry that you have, don't quit. Keep going. In that life that gets hard and hinders you from living to the glory of God, don't quit. Keep going. This all encouraged the people to keep working. And this all ought to encourage us to not quit. Not quit, but keep on walking. 
with God's glory revealed in the person of Christ as the one to whom we labor and strive, not according to our own strength, but His ever-present which mightily works within us. Colossians 1, 29. The presence of God. And so take a moment to think about this. The troubled times, they only discourage us when we are doing things like looking back to how things were before the hard times started. Write that down. Looking at the temple now in light of how the temple used to be. Because in looking back in that way, there's good ways to look back, but looking back in that way as the people were here, we lose the focus on our Lord. That's the troubled times, the encouraging times, that is the courage-filled times, which pick us up even in the face of adversity and hardship. And when we fear and are discouraged... These words of exhortation to take courage and to work and to fear not and to keep working are productive for the kingdom of God and for God's glory because in those times we are absorbed by His presence. We are captivated by our God. For His presence with us is an enabling and abiding presence. Haggai's second message here in our passage this morning ends with another courage-building word, an encouraging word from our God. And it is, again, an expression of love to us as our God of love divinely communicates to us that His presence with us should comfort us. Being convinced of Him being with us causes us to not quit, but to courageously keep going in the face of intimidation, in the face of a lack of need. God now adds a further dimension to it. In heading number three, future times. In verses six through nine. Look at verse 6. For thus says Yahweh, once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares Yahweh. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says Yahweh, and in this place I will give peace, declares Yahweh. Notice that little phrase, once more, in a little while. I like that. I like that because that tells me and that reminds my soul that God is still working. That he hasn't stopped working. 
And if he's still working, I can still trust him. He never sleeps and he never slumbers. He doesn't quit and so I'm safe to keep on going. No matter what's happening. But look now at what he is going to do. Shake the heaven and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. That is a comprehensive shaking. If God is going to say once more there, it means that he's done this before. And so bring to mind and remember the day in which Haggai is delivering this message. The 21st of the seventh month, the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, celebrating God's deliverance in the Exodus. An Exodus was from where? Egypt. To where? Mount Sinai. And what happened at Mount Sinai? Well, the giving of the law. But God came down, didn't He? God came down that mountain and did what? Mark it down. He displayed His presence. And what happened when He displayed His presence? The entire earth quaked. Well, God says He'll do that again. Once more. And the only time this kind of, things hap- this, this kind of thing happens again is in that day that Isaiah chapter 13 verse 13 speaks of, which says, Yahweh speaking, Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place. At the fury of Yahweh in the day of his burning anger. That is in reference to the second half of the tribulation. We call it the great tribulation. The great tribulation is prior to the return of Christ. Listen to Revelation chapter 16 verse 18. It says this, And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since mankind came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. This is also referring to the time of the Great Tribulation, prior to the coming of Christ. Look ahead in Haggai to verses 21 and 22 of chapter 2. This is in the final word, the fourth and final word, that we'll get to, Lord willing, one day. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. Verse 22, I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. And so clearly this is a literal shaking. And clearly it refers to the coming judgment in the great tribulation, which occurs, as I've said, prior to our Lord's second coming. So there is significant shaking in the world. 
Remember verse 7 says, I will shake all the nations. New Zealand's going to shake. Not like these little ones we get. We're going to shake. And what's the result of that shaking? Look at verse 7 again, the second half. The result is that they will come with the wealth of all nations. The shaking brings in treasures, brings in wealth. Some here, like the King James Bible and the NIV, want to make this a reference to Christ. Old hymns have been sung about this verse. Christ being the desire of the nations, that He is the desire, singular, of the nations. And some of the most esteemed theologians in times past have written Christologically about this passage, and it's so attractive to be drawn into that and preach much of Christ about in this passage here and make this very Christocentric here in this verse. And I, I really, I'm pulled and drawn to doing that. But exegesis wins and exegesis must always win because what is important to note here is that the will come there or shall come with the wealth, that will come is plural. It's plural. And you cannot attach a singular, like Christ is singular, you cannot attach something singular to a plural, what's called prepositional phrase. Shall come and will come is a plural prepositional phrase. And so this is referring to treasures, plural, or wealth, plural. And what is that wealth? Verse 8 tells us that that wealth is the silver and the gold. And so if this is not an explicit reference to Jesus, what's it talking about? Well, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60 real quick. Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah here in this chapter is writing about the coming millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom being a time of a thousand years where there will be a temple. A great temple will be built. Look at verse 5. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. That'd be interesting. The, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you. The rams of Nehebeth will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar and I shall glorify my glorious house. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like the doves to their lattices? Surely the coastlands will wait for me and the ships of Tarshish will come first. 
to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them. For the name of Yahweh your God and for the Holy One of Israel, that's Jesus, because He has glorified you. Foreigners will build up your walls and their kings will minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you and in my favor I have had compassion on you. Your gates will be opened continually. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations which their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom will not serve you, which will not serve you will perish. And the nations which will be utterly ruined, the glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, the cypress together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I shall make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. This is not talking about the eternal state. This is talking about the millennial kingdom. They will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, verse 14, and they will call you the city of, the Lord, of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. Verse 16, you will also suck the milk of nations and suck the breast of kings. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, verse 17, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. The gold is mine and the silver is mine, declares Yahweh in Haggai. And so this is emphasizing that the treasures of the nations will be brought into the temple of the millennial kingdom. If you go and read Ezekiel in chapter 40 through to chapter 48, you will read all about this millennial temple and the grandeur and the size of it. It is by far the biggest temple ever built. It is easily 10 to 15 times bigger than Solomon's temple. And so that is what is meant in Haggai, back there if you will, that the temple that you're building right now, that you're discouraged about, you're dismayed about, God is saying through Haggai, don't be. Because even that temple of Solomon's that you are reminiscing about and the present one that you're building which is discouraging you, don't fret because the one that is coming when Christ establishes His millennial kingdom, will contain more glory, for it will contain all the gold and all the silver of the earth. King Cyrus, when he made that decree, he only gave you a little bit of gold and silver on your way out of exile. But I will give you all the nation's gold and silver in my millennial kingdom when my son rules for a thousand years here on earth. Which will be a place, look at the end of verse 9 in Haggai 2, and in this place I will give peace. That's what the millennial kingdom is. Place of peace here on earth. 
the author of Hebrews takes a small portion of Haggai, namely verse 6, and quotes it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26, and then commends it, and then, sorry, and then comments on it in verse 27. Let me read that for you. It says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 and 27. And his voice shook the earth then, that's speaking about Mount Sinai, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Verse 27 says, this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now, there is a lot that can be said about this, and we don't have the time, but I want you to know this, that in the shaking of the earth and in the establishing of the millennial kingdom with that coming temple of such greater grandeur filled with the treasures of the nations, that all points to the fact that there is a Christ who rules and reigns. Jesus, our Lord, rules both now and forever. Jesus came and lived and died for our sins. He rose again for our justification. And He immediately ascended to the right hand of the Father where He rules and reigns now on His throne, awaiting the time when all His enemies will be made His footstool and when all the nations' wealth will come into His kingdom. And that is what the author of Hebrews does. He takes that portion of Haggai to drive home the point that there is an unshakable kingdom to come. And Christ is the King of that kingdom. So both the millennial kingdom temple and the eternal kingdom all point us to Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. Take courage. It's all about Jesus. Do not fret. It's all about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. My failures. He carries them for me. And so we consider these future times not quitting, but working. Not in our own strength, but in the strength of His might. And if I feel weak, and if I feel afraid, it's okay. And if I stumble and trip, it's okay because Christ is stronger than any of my fears and any of my weaknesses and any of my failures. My own ability is not my confidence. My confidence is in Christ. We fail, don't we? As fathers. We fail as mothers. We fail as husbands and wives. We fail as we go about our day-to-day life. And that failure forces us when we truly believe in the presence of God to look to and to lean upon Him who is there in a time of need ever calling us to not quit, but keep going. Those words, for I am with you, encourage us to keep going. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are so grateful
church. The saints assembled, literally, physically. It's not so much about us coming and declaring our love for you. Lord, it is about you showing your love for us. Thank you for the book of Haggai. Thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. Thank you that your son ever lives to intercede for us. Thank you that he's ever present with us. Thank you that the triune Godhead indwells us. Forgive us, Father, for our sin. Lord, we long in our heart of hearts to be faithful and obedient into what you call us to do, and then yet we fail. Lord, help us to take this second message and take courage and to keep going and to fear not. For you are with us and your strength is mightily at work within us. And so help us to rest in that and help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.